JP Morgan's model is showing that the odds of a recession in 2023 have dropped from 98% in October to roughly 73% now, with five out of seven of the major sectors dropping below a 50% chance of recession. I disagree. And I have a feeling that maybe all three of my guests today disagree, but we're going to discuss it. I've got James Lavish today, who I know you guys all have been asking me to get back, of course, and Dave Weisberger, Mike McGlone, the dream team for Mondays. We talk macro. Let's go. Let's go. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, also known as the Wolf of All Streets. Before we get started, please subscribe to the channel and hit the like button. Amazing what two or three bullish weeks of price action can do to people's models and opinions when we all know that two to three weeks of price action should mean absolutely nothing when judging this, the status of the economy, the odds of a new bull market, or any of the other excitable trends that we're seeing people talking about all over the place. As you guys know, before we get started, we are sponsored by Prime XPC. So check that out. I'm going to go ahead and bring on all three of the guests today. I love having uh, four people here. It makes it look so good. Welcome, gentlemen. James, thank you for getting up early on our behalf. Of course. Always happy to be on here talking to you, Scott. Yeah. So listen, I'm just going to show it really, really quick. But here's that article. JP Morgan model shows recession odds fall sharply across markets. Pretty crazy considering in October, they were pricing in a 98% chance of a recession this year. James, since uh, you're not here every single Monday, what do you think of that that claim? I think that it's pretty optimistic. Uh, I, I, I have, uh, you know, everything we do here is probabilistic, right? So it's all prob- probabilities that we're looking at. And I just happen to think there's a pretty high probability that the Fed overshoots here. They tighten for too long. And um, we, uh, we, we head into a recession. I mean, you heard Powell talk about it a number of times at the different uh, pressers, the, the, the press conferences. And he said the Fed, ha- they cannot let inflation get out of control. They know that they, they, they you know, he doesn't want to be known uh, like in the Arthur Burns uh, era. He wants to be known as, as kind of more of the Volcker era. Right. So. Um, he's going to tighten and he knows, and like he said, he's got tools to deal with over tightening, meaning QE, uh, they can, they can print more money. They can flood the market with capital if they need to with, uh, with liquidity. And, uh, and I think Scott, the only thing, there's a caveat, the only thing that would prevent the fed from holding on too tight and keeping rates high, which I think is, uh, you know, uh, over 5%. Uh, as a terminal rate and keep them there for, for too long is if we have some sort of liquidity event, a credit event, and, uh, and we have to somehow uh, inject liquidity into the, into the treasury market. I think that's the only way that, that they don't hold tight to their guns. Mike, Dave. I think we're going to end up with a consensus and Dave, you're polite for letting me go. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you that and respect that. And I, the problem, I think James points out clearly, let's just look at the facts. The Fed, this time last year, Fed funds were zero. It's not even been a year. And we've had the greatest hike in the history of mankind from a global basis of, I would say, reducing liquidity from the market. It's January. It's time when humans 
factor in the human nature. Yes, I want to be excited. Yes, I'm going to go on that diet and it's already January 23rd and forget the gym. I mean, this is just classic human nature. You got to fade this. I mean, it'd be wonderful if JP Morgan models right and it's only 78% versus 79%. But the fact is, this is just getting started on a global basis. And what's the Fed going to do at the next meeting? They're still tightening. I just never seen this before. And I have to respect the rules of trading and economics and liquidity. You never want to be wrong, long risk assets when they're relatively expensive and the Fed is taking away the punch bowl, not just the Fed on a global basis. So I like to measure here on a one year basis. Copper's bounced this year, but guess what? Copper's still down on a one year basis. Crude oil's still down on a one year basis. You know what's one asset that's up on a one year basis? Gold. If you look at gold on a 12 month basis, 120 month basis, and since the financial crisis, it's beating, it beats gold. Crude oil's down in every one of those measures, and copper and gold's up. I think it's a matter of time the gold breaks out higher above $2,000 an ounce. Bitcoin's going to follow that mode and be kind of stuck between gold going up and stocks going down. And to me, if you're bullish risk assets after, you know, in January, I mean, this is a conversation as far as I'll end real quickly. As far as the models tilting towards not having a severe recession, this is a conversation we should have in June or July at the earliest on a normal basis of the lag of pulling away liquidity and what happens to markets. Pass it back to Dave, your turn. I think that the definition of recession is very relevant, just like the definition of inflation. The fact that, and it's not getting a lot of airtime, but the fact that they're about to change how inflation is calculated again. Mm -hmm. And anybody who thinks that the definition of inflation is going to show more rather than show less, I, I mean, I don't think there's another side to that bet. I mean, anyone who believes that, I mean, please. To, you know, DM me, happy to make you a bet on that one. Uh, but I don't think anyone will take me up on it unless they're suicidal. Uh, I think that that's in part going to give them the opportunity to relax probably sooner than, than you might think. But the reality is, is the definition of recession that they care about is the one that causes unemployment to spike, which has not really happened yet. Right. I don't think that. And they've been very clear about this. He doesn't give a rat's ass about risk assets. He does not care what the stock market does within within reason, but when it hits the wealth effect enough that at that point you're driving businesses out of, you know, you know businesses to to go under and fire people, that's where it gets to be problematic from his perspective. So I think it's really really important to understand what the, what they really want to achieve. I mean, his nirvana is 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 to have risk assets and cool down not drive inflation from that side but the, the fact of the matter is we really would the political side of it is really about unemployment and you know is is it a recession if unemployment goes from three point something percent to five point something percent well if the answer is yes then for sure we're going to have that is the answer if unemployment goes from three percent to ten percent is he going to let that happen no effing way he, he will he will uh pivot very quickly if that starts to happen so you know it, it, because it'll be really easy for them full employment and controlling inflation are their twin mandates so that's really the thing to watch as unemployment starts ticking up that's when he's going to stay off of let off of the gas if, if you consider well whichever your metaphor is doesn't matter people you know it, it's not gas in the economy so i do think that it that it is relevant to understand what the definition is what happened to the definition being consecutive quarters of <coughs> negative you know, growth GDP? Oh, that's so, that, I mean, you gone? know, we're, we're all too old for that. I mean, you know, we're not hip enough 
you know, look, I, as I said, I don't really care, you know, what, how you define it. I just think once you define it, then you stick to it. And if the answer is consecutive quarters of slightly negative GDP, you know, you know, basically GDP contraction, that 73%, you know, versus 90 some odd percent seems insane to me, which is, I think, what Mike was saying. Uh, uh, if your definition is unemployment starts to pick up, I think they're going to, they, they very well might overshoot for that to happen, but that's going to be the trigger. It's interesting that now they're basically pushing the recession back when you look at most of the models and talking about the end of 2023 and beginning of 2024, from what I've seen, as opposed to when we were talking about this last spring and summer, that by 2023 would be in recession. It just seems like they're kicking the can down the road when nothing has effectively changed. What's the difference here between then? Aren't we, and couldn't you argue that we're in a recession? Uh, James, maybe you can that's it. No, that's a, that's a good question. But if you look at the, the, the primary, one of the primary indicators of a recession and all these guys know is uh, the 10 year and the two year spread, right? So yeah, if you look sorry. at the 10 year treasury and the two year treasury, uh, and, and just for your, your listeners to simplify it for them, if you look at the yield curve, uh, you know, of the, of the uh, treasuries, they're supposed to go up from shorter duration to longer duration. And the reason is that is, for that is that um, if you're going to loan your money out for longer, then you want to be adequately uh, compensated for the risk of loaning that money out. So you want to get a higher return on that for longer term period of time. And that's a normal yield curve where the, the rates go up from, say, the Fed funds rate one month, the three month, the one year, two year, 10 year. They should all be higher in succession. But if we look at the, the yield curve today, it's inverted. And, you know, and what that means is that the, the, the 10 year and the 30 year, the, the interest rate on those, the yield that you're getting on those is lower than the yield you're getting on the short duration. The, the Fed funds rate, the one month, the one year, uh, the two year. And so if you if you take that that 10 year and you sub, that 10 year yield and you subtract the two year yield, um, you're you're getting a negative yield that 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 spread between them is negative. And right now it's running at about 70 basis points, which is yeah. far worse than it was even in the great financial crisis. And so and. And to answer your question about when does the when does the the actual recession really hit? When do we start really feeling the pain of that in our in our production and our productivity? It's it's usually a good period after that it begins to invert, which happened this summer, right? So if you look a year out, that's about when the 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 actual recession would occur. So. Um, that it's a, it's a, it's a pretty good indicator and I'm sure Mike and Dave have a lot to riff on that, but that, that's, uh, that's something that we're looking at pretty closely. But I'm glad James brought that in. Cause it's, it's, not, it's, as I think, as Rosie said, Dave Rosenberg says, if there's any one metric he would use, it's a curve and it's inverted. And there's just simple rules of discipline in life and money management. When the curves is inverted, you typically expect after the first fed ease, after the market's well heading towards a positive trajectory, you expect the stock market to bottom, 
and bond yields typically um, start rallying well be, or prices well before that. That's already started. So I think the key thing, remember, this is human nature. It's the first of the year, but he's excited. But this is just getting started. And, you know, yes, we all know that word of recession is overhyped. Everybody's expected. I just think it's going to be worse than most people expect. And it's what I really enjoy having been on the sell side and buy side, which you hear from sell side strategists is there. They are have a vested interest in yeah. not – um, telling you the worst case scenario. They have to sell products. And okay, uh, that we have to be careful. But people who run real money, which I think are kind of on here, or involved with running real money, or don't have a bias, will just tell the truth. And to me, that's the fact. So what's broken cryptos? We've had this massive rally, pretty much short covering. I mean, how often do they make V bottoms? Yeah, maybe. Typically, you have to go make it painful. And if it's that easy, and my old rules, it's that wrong. So the fastest horse in the race is up the most. The biggest performer this year has really been the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. It was the most beat up. So we have all the tax loss selling from last year. We have the normal hopium bouncing. If it's June and we're trading like this type of, in July, these type of levels, I'd be kind of, yeah, excited. But Man, this is just one of those classic things you learn in life and you learn through studying history. Yeah, the stock market in 1930 was up about 50 percent from the low of 1929 and the rest was history. Just look at the facts of the trends. And here's a key fact I'll end with. Global GDP is clearly in contraction. Yes, people are hoping hope about, um, G, uh, about China, but they're not a demand pool society. They're an exporter. Clearly in contraction, and central banks are still tight, and the curves, the curves inverted. That's that's what's going to take to end that trajectory, and that's where I look at things like gold and long bonds is where you're supposed to be looking to see the best performance. I mean, I, when it comes to crypto, I I, I kind of disagree. Well, certainly on Bitcoin, I disagree. Uh, I think that Bitcoin is 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 fascinating to look at supply demand dynamics. I think that. And when you look at, at and, and I hate, and Scott knows this, he knows that I am not, I don't worship at the altar of technical indicators. I think that, you know, head and shoulders bottoms are my favorite one to make fun of or head and shoulders tops <laughs> because when they work, they look beautiful and people only point to the ones that actually work. And when you actually start, well, after the fact. You, you, you realize <laughs> that, that, you know, it's, it's not now the reason that there's reasons for it. But the truth of the matter is we saw over in 2022, from May of 2022, all the speculation and many, many, many billions of dollars just suck right out of the market. And so we are at, and we've been, we were saying, I was saying this when it was at 17, 18,002. So let's, let's be careful because we have, the great thing about the internet is it's forever. The bad, terrible thing about the internet is it's forever. But in this case, I've been very consistent. The fact is, all of the speculation was sucked out. And what you ended up with was Bitcoin uh, holders percentage, long-term holders at all-time highs, and we're still there. And so you don't have a lot of, of long speculators. There's very few animal spirits. I mean, yeah, some creeped in over the last couple of weeks, but nothing close to <clears throat> what you have. Uh, you pointed it out yourself. Gold has rallied. And if if Bitcoin has a use case, it's to be digital gold. Now, I, you've all heard me say that I think that it trades like an option. The market is pricing that option at less than you know 5% right now. While adoption is at an all-time high, the network just hit again an all-time high in hash rate last week. So you know, th there's a lot of reason to believe that, that there's a delinking going on. The other thing to keep in mind is for those who do care about technicals, the 200-week moving average, when it broke below that, in the summer, 
uh, it was towards is when it when it made its new lows. Uh, it is actually back to within a couple thousand of the of the 200 week moving average, which is now pegged at around 24.5. <clears throat> which, by the way, if you look at any at a chart uh, going back over the last year, you'll see 24.5 is that level that is marked the top of this extended trading range post Luna collapse. Right, so, and you can see that here. Yeah, the, the highs after uh, the the lows of the summer were about twenty five. Right, to now, twelve exactly, and the fifty and two hundred MA are literally equidistant above and below that line. Right. right now. So now I'm going to agree with something that Mike said, though. Is time is important here? No, it's very very rare that candles as quickly as we've had in the last month. Uh, are sustainable. That is true. Retracements happen. There's lots of reasons for that too. People taking profits. It, there, there's lots of reasons. But the fact is that I can absolutely understand why people are excited about what the long-term potential could be. They generally have to have the rolled up newspaper hit them in the nose uh, <laughs> on in, in between here and there. But that doesn't mean that 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 they'll be wrong. It means that, you know, don't leverage yourself, make your, you know, you know, put your position, your portfolio the way you want to be. Uh, you over leverage yourself when you get hit in the nose, you get stopped out and all of a sudden, kaboom, uh, you, you get nothing when it goes where you want it to go. So, I mean, I think the time factor is extremely relevant. But if you look at what's going on. Uh, the truth of the matter is the single most bearish thing I believe about what's going on in the crypto market is how altcoins are performing as well as Bitcoin is right now. Without And by the way, many of them are clearly risk assets in, in the truest sense of the word. They are basically they're going to trade on similar factors as 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 technology companies. And you expect to see multiple compression there. So, you know, to me, that's the most bearish thing going on. But, you know, I, I'm not. I know I'm starting to sound very Bitcoin maximalist like, and that's actually not fair uh, because I'm not. But I do think that there is quite a bit of crap in crypto still. And I won't go naming them, Scott, because I don't want to have your armies of various people, you know, inundating your your <laughs> your thread. Oh, you're good. <laughs> but but the truth is, is that that there's a, a lot of reason to believe. I mean, hell. If you look at the one V bottom we did have, which I think was a V bottom, and I think it was very, very relevant, was when FTX failed, you had one more wave of forced selling. It was not that big. I mean, realistically, it was trading in the 18s. It went down into, you know, maybe you know just below 16, which I know sounds a lot, but in Bitcoin case, that's not really that big. And that was it. And basically, they saw the people who had to sold everything that wasn't nailed down. Now you have the opposite. All the people who had money trapped on FTX, and I don't know where the betting market is now, but regardless of whether that money is trapped and missing out on this rally, or they just say, listen, I wanted to have 2 to 5% of my portfolio in Bitcoin, and, and I thought I did, and now I don't, and look what's happening. I think that was what the biggest effect was, because short covering, while people got all giddy, $1 billion, if you look over a one-month rally, $1 billion in short covering in Bitcoin, it doesn't even register in, you know, in terms of, of, of compared to the rally size. If you do a percentage of short covering versus the actual percentage rally, it, this isn't even close. But what you do have is billions of dollars that was sitting on the sideline by force because of Sam's theft that all of a sudden is like, well, you know what? I really did want to own this stuff. So what the hell do I do? Whether or not I get, I'm going to get the money back or not. And so you do have a supply demand dynamic that's interesting. But anyway, it, the, the long and the short of it is, I think that Bitcoin is 
likely to bounce around a trading range like this for a while. But when it breaks, I think that the 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 odds are to the upside, not the downside of the trading range. I, well, that's the thing, David. We completely agree on that in the macro supply and demand. I had an adoption into that demand case because I've never seen this. It's as far as demand adoption is just so early days. It's like internet 20 years ago. So macro big picture, I mean, I see another zero being added to Bitcoin question at the time. And you're supposed to be accumulating just this short term bounce this year in January. And the hope, and that's what I'm very concerned about in every asset. Um, and just want to be careful with people understand that if you're buying 23, you can easily have to um, write it down to 15 before you see, um, you know, and a zero get added onto the back of that uh, number. Yeah, that, that's a that's a really good point, Mike, and I and I fully agree with both of you guys and what, what you're talking about there, and, and what you said before that Bitcoin being the uh, the fastest horse. You know, the question is, like Dave said, there's some short covering, sure, but how much of this how much of this move is because well, you know, first of all, Bitcoin maximalists they they tend to uh, they tend to be pretty well versed in the macro world now. Right. So they're 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 meat experts or they're stainless steel. And uh, and, you know, <laughs> what kind of pan you use for to cook that meat? But they're, they're actually very intelligent about all this stuff and they're very well read about it. So and if you go back to you guys have lived through these uh, these cycles, you know, we've seen it multiple times in our careers and it's it's market psychology. We have been conditioned ever since long term capital management. And the Fed coming in and and uh, and and making sure that Goldman didn't go under, you know, uh, the New York Fed stepping in there and 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 getting an agreement from all the banks to to rescue long term, we we've been conditioned to expecting the Fed pivot, the Fed to turn around and make sure that we don't go into deep depression because of all the debt on our books, the debt to GDP, and 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 the problem that we've talked about ad nauseum, Scott, um, but. We've been conditioned to that. So the question is, and what Mike is saying and what's so important is how if 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 we're if we're seeing the the market turn on on the perception that there or on just trying to front run that pivot, even if the market knows that they may lose a little bit between now and the time that it does pivot, because when it does, man, if you look at that chart in, in March 2020. And you look at how quickly these risk assets pivoted straight up, you couldn't catch them. And I think that there, there are managers who are scared of missing that that run, even if it means that they're buying a little bit early. That that's yeah. Yeah, I just want to say very quickly, we, we keep talking about the Fed pivot, and I think everybody in crypto is looking for Bitcoin and Ethereum and all these assets to go crazy after this mythical Fed pivot. Historically, the Fed pivot is not the bottom, right? We have a pivot and then the bottom actually comes months. I mean, Mike, you may actually have the data on it, but it becomes quite a bit later. And even, oh. I mean, I'm literally, I'm, I just looked it up and I just got this you know, BlackRock from three weeks ago. A Fed pivot shouldn't signal the all clear to investors. BlackRock so, saying that, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, let's just look at the most relevant recent example. And I've gone back, you can go back. 100 years easy, 50 years, because we have good data in the Fed since they first was at 2019, 13, I think. Um, the, um, 
last good example is the Fed started easing in September 2007. We all remember that because the housing market started heading lower and we had problems. Inflation was still heading higher. And the stock market bottomed um, about, what, a year and a half later, March 2009. Um, it's 666. We all remember that in S&P 500. To me, that's a fact right now. The Fed is tightening. And so I just disciplined myself. Okay, liquidity is being taken away. Yeah, I love cryptos in the big picture, but all liquid assets have to subject that. And I think that's the key thing, Dave. And James pointed out, this is, I like to point out, this is a, the world has changed with the ease of ease that we've gotten from the Fed and we've become, grown accustomed to. Now, one um, cycle I really remember well is 1994, that tightening cycle. That was pretty severe. And I can, I, that's when I came to New York. That's when I first started trading treasuries in New York rather than for clients in Chicago in the trading pits. And it was a pretty severe bear market because the Fed tightened so much, but it set the stage for that massive bull market for 95 and to the rest here. And I'm talking out of equities. The key point is, remember, triples didn't exist then. So here's what's happening now is that liquidity is being taken away. We've come from the most elevated equity market ever in many measures. And it's just early days going down, and it's just the time of year people are supposed to reallocate and get excited, so even in crypto. So I view this as way too much hopium early in the year versus the reality of running money is you're supposed to be careful with this rally. If you've made good money already, like I like the people who are smart enough to buy GBTC, which we pointed out was just too cheap at 50% discount, um, they're already up 50%, well, 48%. Um, but it's still pretty wise. So yeah, that was capitulation, but... Now I just see it's the basic rules of economics is if you're fighting the Fed if you're getting too bullish here. And so I'll, I'll point out the, the history of the commodities, which have been very close to um, um, equities, too, is they almost always bottom about a year and a half, a little bit less, after the Fed first ease. Um, and we're, not, we're still tightening. Yeah, I, 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 you know, it's funny, you know, Bitcoin is, is like bouncing around. I mean, you know, it's uh, well, it depends on where you look. I mean, we obviously at CoinRoutes have the exact data, so I know it's two hundred dollars lower than it says on Yahoo. But the fact is, is Tesla is up, you know, almost four percent today. And you know, when I think that that you're seeing, it's interesting. Bitcoin's volatility, even through although it's been a a rally, and the and the volatility of the rally obviously gets measured as well. But the fact is, is Bitcoin's volatility for months has been lower than a lot of the 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 you know the the I don't know what what people are calling them these days but leading tech stocks you know the Teslas the Netflixes etc of the world and you know the hopum is and stuff like that I mean I it wasn't all that long ago you know who uh, 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 James and my I panel made out in Las Vegas you know Mike Alred Alfred was calling for uh for Tesla to drop, you know, down to 60 when it was breaking down every day. And he was like gleefully tweeting about it. Now, I don't like tweaking Mike when he's not here. It would be great to have him here, actually, because he's phenomenal on so many levels. But I mean, it must just make him grind his teeth, I, I you know, to see Tesla, you know, breaking up through 120 then now, now, now 130 and, and on the cusp of 140. But but that's really where the hopium is 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 is, is focused. GBTC is actually extremely important for why I'm so bear why I'm so bullish on Bitcoin. The fact that Genesis has now filed and GBTC is now rallying, it's almost perfectly classic sell the rumor by the news, right? And the truth is, is people realize, wait a minute, this trust isn't going to get dissolved. What the hell? You know, I don't know how much longer they have to wait, but there will be a new SEC chairman at some point in lifetime who doesn't have his head up his ass when it comes to this topic. And I'm happy anytime, anywhere, 
Gary Gensler wants to debate this one, I'll happily do it. I posted a thread on why Kramer thanking Gary Gensler for the Bitcoin ETF rejection <laughs> was incre was literally the dumbest thing that he has ever uh, tweeted in a story career of yeah. tweets. I mean, this is the man who called for, who literally said in June that Meta has no place to go but up. Just keep that in mind. And this one, this one was so much dumber. And and I'll list those 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 reasons for anybody who wants to hear it. But the fact is, is there's a trust of Bitcoin. And it should never have traded at a discount that big. But the reason was liquidity. I mean, Mike and I always talk about liquidity. People needed to sell something, and that's what got sold. And they knew that it was going to be a long-term holding. And so you had to flush that out. And so there's so much of that liquidity stuff sloshing around. You know, we look at the Fed tightening, and you say it's historic from zero in terms of percentage terms. Well, sure, because you're coming off of 25 basis points, too. It's going to be there. But... Depending on how you measure inflation, it's still the the the, the interest rate is still negative. Well, if, if I could follow up on what Dave said real quick before we move on, and that's uh, you mentioned volatility. Um, I love to watch annual volatility. So annual volatility in Bitcoin versus Amazon is the lowest ever. It's one to one right now, ever. It's never been lower. Of course, you expect that Amazon's been around thirty years, twenty or so years. Bitcoin's maybe ten and a little bit more. Lowest ever. So I look at that. I love comparing it to yes, longer term. I'm bias more towards Bitcoin than Amazon. And with Tesla, it's about um, Bitcoin volatility is actually lower. It's um, 0.8 on the annual basis. It's less than the Tesla's volatility, but it's actually been uh, lower. The lowest ever was right at 2021. In bigger picture, I'm much more bullish Bitcoin than Tesla. So back to you. I, I, I think that being much more bullish Bitcoin than Tesla makes <laughs> makes a, a lot a lot of sense long term. I guess all of this though begs the question. Then, okay, let's say we do get a recession this year. Is it possible? Plausible? I don't know. Possible that Bitcoin and crypto assets can fully decouple in this environment and actually rise in the face of recession, or does that have to happen after the macro changes? I saw Dave shaking his head. Maybe you want to get that one? Or, or... <laughs> I mean, look, I think that decouple from what is the key here, right? I mean, I, I would be, I would literally be stunned to see uh, the Bitcoin gold correlation not, I would really be surprised if Bitcoin and gold doesn't reestablish its correlation in 2023. I would really be very surprised. That That's the honest truth. I don't have a particular opinion Although I think that it's decoupling from other risk assets, I think is something that doesn't, I don't know whether it will be, I don't have a nearly as strong of an opinion, but I do think that it is, it's fascinating. Even the gold's correlation to the S&P has vacillated over time. I mean, recently it's, it, as Mike pointed out right in the preamble and, and he can look it up, uh, I'm going to guess, although I haven't looked at it, I'm going to guess that it, it's starting to break it's starting to go back to inverse again, but you know, who the hell knows, not everything's moved this month. But the fact is, is I think looking at what things are correlated to what matter, the, the fact is, is I'll keep saying it, Bitcoin trades like an option. Most of crypto trades like an option. Options are risky. Therefore, for it to be, they, they are going to be sensitive to capital flows on the macro side. The difference is, is businesses that have to borrow in order to build business because they can't get equity financing are by definition as rates rise get choked off from that capital it's more expensive and they have to slow down either not hire as fast or lay off people that's just ec economics 101 so it depends on what interaction you're talking about 
And that's funny because we've seen what almost sixty thousand layoffs from tech companies in the last few weeks. So, uh, it, it you know, like you said, Dave, I, I I think that Bitcoin is just trading like the ultimate risk asset right now, anticipating a pivot. That that's kind of what it what it's trading like. Um, will it decouple in this cycle? It really depends on how much the Fed prints and uh, and how how much Bitcoin itself solidifies um, its standing as a store of value, which I think is going to be difficult in this cycle. It's going to take a lot more capital. It's going to take trillions and trillions of dollars in that in that ecosystem, in the Bitcoin ecosystem, in order for that to establish itself as a as a store of value. I think that's true in the United States for sure. Uh, and we talk about this a lot, the rest of the world, I'm not so sure, but you just said something that's very important. Everyone's watching this hand, right? You know, the, the, what the rates are. The real question is what's going on back here with liquidity. And you wrote a great piece this weekend about something about, you know, we haven't mentioned debt ceiling once. Uh, I, I think that you, the listeners would love to get your recap on the platinum coin and what the treasury might do. And to be honest, I think that if they are crazy enough to do that, uh, that that could be exactly the stimulus for a linking in terms of Bitcoin and gold and, and other assets that that people might want to put into. Scott, you're shaking your head, but I'm I mean, just laughing because now I know that the trillion coin is going to be a theme on every single Monday that we do here, as well it should be. I'm just <laughs> la- I'm, I'm not shaking my head. I'm laughing. I, 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 actually, I, it'll be I read a James's newsletter as well. Until, yeah. until the debt ceiling gets raised for another two years and we'll go through this kabuki theater again, you know, the next time. <laughs> but, but, that's, but what we said is, uh, actually, this is a key thing that's happening this year. Bitcoin's up and everything else is up. Great. Um, I do, my base case is at some point, Bitcoin's going to trade more like uh, U.S. Treasuries, long bonds and gold. And that's more likely to happen to a recession. And I think Bitcoin was a great leading indicator last week. Remember, it was up, breaking above 20,000, 21,000. S&P stock market was still going down. What followed? Stock market, what's the leading indicator? Bitcoin, still, it's becoming more and more the global leading indicator. Never stops trading. And every day I see that, I'm like, wow. You know, from a guy who's in the trading pits and used to get customers used to sue the exchange because when exchange would shut down, I've just never seen this. So it's revolutionary. But if you look at the correlation of gold, I was just check as we're speaking 50. I always go weekly, 50 weeks, 100 weeks. It's like nothing, 0.1. The R squared is just doesn't really matter. So the actual correlation isn't there. But there's a higher correlation, I think, to the broad stock market because you know what happens. Stock market goes up. Yeah, it's liquidity. Tech stocks, yes. But that's the key thing, not roping in Ethereum too much to the maximalist that has been very shocking is that Ethereum-Bitcoin ratio has stayed strong despite the bear market. That to me says, yeah, you want to just not be sticking with Bitcoin. You want to be buying an index and put those alts way down there and way overweight the top big ones. Um, let an index do that. And um, to me, that's the way to get access to this space. And I think that's what the institutional... Um, money managers and hedge funds, endowments, family offices, pension funds are getting. They're way far away, but they're all getting that. Uh, don't want to miss out too much in this asset class. And they're getting access, I think, through equities and other alternatives, too. So, James, are we going to see the, uh, the platinum coin? <laughs> oh, my God, I hope not. So, uh, yeah, Mike and Dave know know what this is. They've seen it a few times before. It's come up. 
Um, but to to just recap, Dave, thank you for the the tip off. The um, so I, I write a newsletter. It's called the Informationist, and this weekend I wrote about uh, the the trillion dollar coin um, idiocy that we have going on. So what is it? Is it is it actually is it a godsend or is it a joke? Right. So um, first of all, we just hit our our, our debt ceiling technically. And that's $34.1 trillion. And Janet Yellen came out and had to do some extraordinary measures, you know, cut, meaning they, they cut putting more money into certain uh, pension and health accounts that, that, are, that are tied to the, the government. So, um, and so she can hold off for another few months, and, but they need to either raise the debt limit or figure out, a, uh, you know, how to cut expenses. And so you've got this battle going on in con- in Congress and with the White House and the Senate about who whether they should cut expenses or if they should raise the debt ceiling again, yet again. Every few years, we just we just keep raising it. And so uh, the McCarthy has, I guess he he agreed that the 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 talk is is that he agreed that he would not agree to raise a debt ceiling without some concessions on, on spending from, from the Democrats. But the White House said that they're not going to negotiate, so here we are. All right, so back rolls around the idea of a trillion-dollar coin. What is that? Well, you know, uh, it, it actually was first brought up a, a long time ago from a, uh, a presidential candidate, um, and I forget his, his name is, uh, uh, I want to find it here so I don't, I don't forget it's Bo, Gr- Bo Gritz in 1992. He brought it up. He brought up the idea of a, um, a a coin that they could mint to pay down the debt. Okay, so he he would hold up this five inch coin on this on the stump. Long story short, he did not get elected. Um, and then flash forward, and once again, the Simpsons um, they they predict this by having a, a, trillion, <laughs> a, a, a trillion dollar bill. And, uh, and why not? Because they, they predicted Walt Disney taking over 20, 20th Century Fox and, and uh, Trump becoming president, right? So anyways, again, it's, it seems like just a joke. But what it is, is there's a technicality at the mint. You, the mint can, the U.S. mint can, can make coins. They can mint coins in denominations on any metal. Uh, that are certain dominate denominations, 5, 10, 25, 50. And usually like gold coins, they make $50 worth, right? So, uh, but when you buy a gold coin, you're buying an ounce of gold and it trades what an ounce of gold is, $1,900 right now. So, um, but there's a loophole where platinum is kind of carved out of that and they can make platinum coins in any denomination. So some somebody came up with this genius idea that, hey, why don't we just make a trillion dollar platinum coin We'll mint it. We'll make the Fed deposit it. Then the Treasury will be able to borrow against that, and we won't have to print money. We, you know, uh, and we won't have to raise the debt ceiling. And that way, we can get around this negotiation of whether or not we should cut expenses or what, whatever we need to do in order to, you know, fix that debt ceiling problem. And so, it, of course, it's ridiculous. It is money printing. Because now you're not taking liquidity out of the market in order to float more treasuries or float more bonds. Um, so it, it, that's number one. Number two, it, it just looks to the rest of the world like we're a clown shell. Like it doesn't make any sense. We're just going to print a coin and put it in the tre- in, from the treasury to the Fed. And it's just, it's just like a magic trick, a sleight of hand. So 
hopefully uh yellen says that she has not she's not in favor of it i don't think the fed would ever be in favor of it and so hopefully the white house doesn't in fact send troops to the fed and force them to accept <laughs> a, a coin <laughs> so it it's laughable. I'd like to hear what Dave and Mike have to think about it because it's just, it just seems like it would just plunge us into, you know, uh, it would accelerate it, to me. It would accelerate the, uh, the lack of confidence or the loss of confidence in the U S treasury as the global reserve asset, just because it, it, it just shows that we don't really care about how much debt, how much we print, how, you know, how much uh, we devalue the U.S. dollar and it, it, it disincentivizes anybody to buy a treasury as a store of value. That's just my that's my opinion. I mean, my opinion is that the, what's going on in Congress between the, the the fact that the White House says they won't negotiate and the fact that we now have 20 people in Congress who have the power to force them to either negotiate or you know, it, it's, it reminds me of the game of a game of chicken, except it, it seems pretty clear that the, the lunatics in Congress are taking the two by four and they're stuffing it onto the steering, uh, onto the, the accelerator and they're tying the steering wheel straight ahead. And they're basically saying to the White House, OK, here we go. And if it happens on both sides, then I don't think the White House is going to have a choice. I think this is the only way they can actually do you know, it, what they want to do if they actually don't want to go to the bargaining table. So, I mean, look, we'll, we'll see. This story in in January is we can laugh about it. If we're still in this situation in May, uh, it's not a laughing matter. And and by the way, you, I'm really curious what Mike thinks because you've seen how many of these, these showdowns and whatever, but it is true that as debt ceiling breaches have gotten closed, we have had issues. Uh, we did get downgraded by S&P once before. There are all sorts of things that are going on. You know, I, I think the rest of the world looks at this and just says, oh, yeah, they're at it again. You know, it's sort of like, you know, the crazy upstairs neighbors screaming. It's like, OK, you know, they're at it again. Now we got, you know, the, it's Congress and the president. But it's not a great thing for our confidence, for confidence in the dollar. And and people always keep underestimating it, you know, in every in all spheres. The U.S. gets a huge benefit by the dollar being a reserve currency. And, you know, while they, they can't really talk about it as such in Washington for fear of disturbing it, it's a big deal. But there have been a lot of stories, a lot more than, than in the past. In the past, when the, the petrodollar was under attack because people in, this, in, the, in the Middle East talked about, uh, you know, denominating oil and something other than dollars, we went to war. Uh, yeah. Now it's getting talked about again at the same time as all of this. It's, it, it's not trivial. Uh, I have no particular opinion, but it's not true. So the um, it was Newt Gingrich. We all some of us remember '95. Remember he was a, him versus Bill, Bill Clinton, the big shutdown. But this there's there's certain things that I've learned the hard way, and certain things I selectively deliberately ignore. And this is one I've selectively deliberately ignored as we dig into the discourse of the shutdown. It's annoying. It's happening, but. Um, and thing I have to admit is I deliberately ignored the details of once I heard about FTX. Once I heard they collapsed, that's all that matter. That money's gone. Move on. Um, and that, but the press will focus on it. I work for a company that's involved in the press, but you know, I'm not, um, they might quote me, but the key thing I like to point out here is this is the macro of what makes America 
great. And most people won't get that, but there's very few countries in the world where you have open discourse and we have people deliberately, publicly disagreeing with others. And we come to a conclusion, as Churchill says, after we exhaust all options. You do not do that in Russia and China. And they had that, uh, that unlimited friendship. And look what that did just almost a year ago within a month what that did to the world. So to me, this is part of what the strength of the U.S. is having that open discourse. Where do you want you to put your money, in U.S. treasuries or Chinese treasuries? Z can take that in a heartbeat with one little decision in a heartbeat. In the U.S., we're going to have a debate over it if we want to you know, take your money. But, but yeah, the, 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 the thing about this is we have to get over this. We have to stop doing this. We have to change the, how we do this uh, debt ceiling because most other countries just don't debate it every couple of years like we do. At least we, if we're in the open, we're working on it. But it also shows to me the value of alternatives like cryptos and gold. And part of, I think, um, the macro, which is the tail risk that we don't get through this easily and we virtually always do. Is but it the, fair to the say that the debt is, has no ceiling, though? I mean, yeah. the, to, no, to we, renegotiate a debt ceiling and raise it every single time. Oh, agreed. No that, that's a problem. But <laughs> compared now, what's where it's the is, as Churchill says about democracy? What country is doing that better? What major country yeah. is better doing that in the U.S.? It's certainly not Europe. Certainly not China. Certainly not Russia. Any major country, maybe Swissy. Certainly not Japan. They're what three hundred debt to GDP. Debt to GDP. Three. I'm sorry. Three X. Yeah, yeah. So uh, to 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 answer that, look, uh, there's only we need a ceiling, you know, or else we will lose confidence. The world will lose confidence in the dollar. Okay, that's number one. Number two, the problem is that we're beginning to crowd out balance sheets with the just sheer amount of debt that we have here in the United States. You, you, we can't go to 60, 70, 80 trillion dollars of debt. There's just not enough. There, there are not enough balance sheets out there, <clears throat> excuse me, to, to actually take that debt and, and, and as an investment in whether it's in the corporate treasury or it's on a pension fund, it's in, it's in uh, you know, a sovereign, it's in a, on a sovereign uh, balance sheet. There's, there's just only so much we can, we can take that so much higher we can take this on real terms you know and so that that's the that's the issue and as other currencies devalue against the u.s dollar that that only makes it worse that, that only that only aggravates the problem so you have to have a ceiling the question is you know <laughs> can the world keep up but isn't the ceiling i i, I yes we do have to have it in name but Mike, to your point, we've said every single time, this is just Kabuki theater. Uh, Dave said that, but then it's, you weren't even paying attention to it when I brought it up last week. You said, forget about it. It's going to, one way or another, it's going to shake out and they're going to raise it because there's no other way. Yeah, exactly. Well, we might do the short-term shutdown. The key thing is if you look at the, um, the biggest spike ever in money supply, debt to GDP went from, it was just around, uh, um, like 100% spike to 134%. I'm looking at chart. We've dropped 120%. Yes, it's improved. Yes, I completely agree with James and Dave said. Um, it just, there's, I, I'm, it just the way our system works. At least we're having the open discourse. We got to get through it. And it's, here's the example. What's happening in France with just raising the uh, retirement age from 62 to 64. Everybody knows this has to happen. It's just a question how you do it. And doing it properly, every it just has to happen. I mean, there were t- when we first started, people lived to 85 now, or almost 80. You have to raise re- that retirement age. Question: How you do it? You you bring it in. You you just 
put in in increments. You have to have probably a second term president. (laughs) But it's a matter of time. If you don't do that, you know, you got a big problem. It just has to happen. Right. And, and, you know, we, we were watching the debt to GDP drop a little bit, but that's, again, that, that, that has to do with just how, how much inflation we have in the system. Right. And that's what we need. We need inflation in order to pay down the debt. It's, it's, it's just pure math. Right. So, um, but the problem is what are you going to cut? Just like Mike said, like, what are you going to cut? You're not going to, you're not going to cut all of these uh, entitlement programs. You're not going to cut social security. You're not going to cut Medicare, Medicaid, and so that's $3.7 trillion annual right there. You can't cut those. Our, our uh, interest payments on our debt have doubled from $400 to $800 billion a year. Uh, it, it's the same size uh, of a line item as our, our military spending now. But the problem is, as we go into a recession, and Scott, you and I talked about this at, you know, a couple of months ago, and it's gotten worse since you and I talked about it, right? So... The problem is, as we go into a recession, your tax receipts are going to go down. They're going to go down between eight and ten percent if we go into a, you know, just a regular recession here. Uh, and then, a- as you go into a recession, your entitlement programs go up because you have to pay out uh, unemployment benefits. So that that's a you know that's a, a, a maybe a fifteen percent delta right there. And so it only gets worse. And as the Fed holds those interest rates high then you're 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 having to pay down old debt with new debt that's more expensive and so your interest payments go up even further and it just it's just self-perpetuating so where's the limit that's the problem and that's what we're that's what we're facing Tr- truly long term that's our that's the problem is that we're facing this long term issue that's structural that I don't know how we get out of truly we're, we're turning japanese well, I mean, it, it, let, let's let's be honest. I mean, I hate to be a tin tinfoil hat kind of guy, uh, you know, with conspiracy theorists. But if you actually look at what what would be helpful, what you would be helpful would be to uh, make the measures of inflation look more benign, yeah. which would then make people think that a nominal rise in GDP is actually a real rise in GDP, which is what you use to pay off debt. And you would then want to crank that delta as as high as you possibly could, because it is exceedingly clear that the only there's only one of two ways to get out of a debt to GDP uh, number that we that we have here. If you include long term entitlement programs, for sure, which are excluded because they're off uh, they're off balance sheet of the U.S. government. I mean, you, know, you, you look at Social Security and uh, and. Medicaid and Medicaid, Medicaid, yeah, Medicaid obligation. Yeah, Medicaid. It's, it's two hundred trillion dollars that we have. Right. So when you're when you look at that together, the only way out is inflation or a default. Default is not an option because that would actually trigger uh, the loss of the U.S. dollars reserve status and so other things. So the only real answer is a form of inflation, and obviously. Uh, you know, there's only so much you can do. So that's one of the reasons they don't want to see consumer inflation going out. I will continue to say that economically speaking, the single dumbest thing that the U.S. government has ever done was initiate the stimulus checks because it took Mm -hmm. decades of inflation in assets, not in consumer goods, and immediately focused it all into consumer goods and services. And, you know, I'm not saying it was dumb in the sense in the overall sense, because, you know, you can make an argument that people needed it. 
Although down here in South Florida, I can tell you that the certainly anecdotally, the spending didn't go into saving for a rainy day or paying down debt. It went to renting, you know, uh, whatever, you know, Lamborghinis and other sort of things and scrolling around South Beach. But the, the, the fact is, is when you, 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 they literally let that genie out of the bottle and now they got to cram that genie back in the bottle. And, and no matter how you want to slice it, that's not easy. And so when Mike talks about what he, you know, very eloquently describes the, the removing liquidity from the system, it's not because they, they want asset prices to go down. They just don't care if it happens. They need to put that genie back in the bottle so they could resume what they were doing, which is get asset prices to continue to go up while debt prices for, and debt service for the U.S. government goes down and then make inflation look as, as low as possible to make nominal GDP rises uh, look like they're real ones. And, and that's really that, what they have to do. Well, that's the most important historical aspect, I think, when we talk about macro right now in real time is let's not underestimate the history of that, the magnitude of the pump we had up to the peak in 21 and the dump we're getting now. And it, it made me, my wife even bought me this book, Boom and Bust. I could have, you know, it was, I think it was a Turner and Quinn. Um, and just reminds us of those that's happened every time in history is when you have the punch bowl pump too much and you take it away, you usually get major issues. And we're just one, what are we, 23 days into this year and we're just bouncing. That to me is the macro. I got to focus on that macro. And word, it's that liquidity pumping that's probably early days. And it's what, and on the back of what Dave pointed out, the biggest pump in history, most notably in this country. Right. So the question is, are, you know, and this, this is exactly what we're looking at. Are they going to revise that, that CPI number, that, that, that measure enough to hide it completely? Or are they going to, are they going to just accept a, a higher nominal, a higher uh, long-term inflation rate as kind of normal, you know, a three to 4% instead of two to two and a half percent? Is that what they do or they do a little bit of both? I think they just do a little bit of both. I think that they that the Fed says, you know, it's kind of it, it's we're in a period here where, where inflation around three, three and a half percent is is normal. And they have to do it, like you said, in order to pay down that debt, that the, the real they need real rates to be negative for a sustained period of time to get this under control. Otherwise, it spirals out of control and we just lo we lose a handle on it. So I, I think there's a good chance we go to what's normal in these situa situations historically. It's, I use the example of 1920 and 1930. I think we're entering a pretty significant historical deflationary period. Um, and Japan's been in it for a while, but now it's global. And it almost always comes on the back of these massive pumps in not just liquidity, but crude oil. We had a pretty good one after 2008. Crude oil pumped to the highest level ever. It's still below that price. And then it dumped. And I just want to point out one fact about inflation, CPI, and everything. I'm a commodity guy. And if there's the most significant place you don't want to be, um, if there's major autocorrelation auto towards deflation, it's in everything you can't grow. That means except the metals. So if you look at crude oil, the, the price on the screen right now is, was first traded in September 2007. It's unchanged. Yet if you look at the CPI index, it's up almost 43%. PPI is up almost 50%. That's where that inflation is showing in the measure. So when people really push back and they're artificial numbers, I'm like, okay, well, I'm a commodity guy. Here's deflation. This is real deflation. The average producer of crude oil in this country is getting the same money they did, what, 15 years ago? <laughs> it's just, and I look at examples of what inflation is. It's the book I'm reading right now called Superabundance. It's 
is we can create so much with less. To me, that's what's accelerating. I think that's what people are missing. And just one good example is look how Europe got through this energy crisis. Germany was able to bring on LNG in 200 days and typically take two to three years for that. Right. And then, you know, Mike, I think you quoted uh, uh, one of our good friend, Jeff, Jeff Booth. Jeff Booth yeah. Yeah. Right yeah. Tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you have this deflationary force against this inflationary force. And, and at some point they're going to clash and they're, we're, we're literally witnessing it as, as we speak. And you've seen Japan, like Japan has been doing this for, for a decade longer. Right. So, um, you know, so, and we finally see in Japan, the, the turn of now there's no longer any free money. Like once they turn off the spigot, that's it. There's no free money in the world anymore. They're the last ones. And so you're seeing it happen real time. And that's the question is, you know, how painful is it going to be? That's the question, uh, you know, because we, we are we are in a period now that is without question, there's going to be a change. Just like Mike said, there's, there's structurally there's a change here. It's happening. And that brings us to time. And I agree. So I think that we can all agree that the recession is not canceled, as uh, J.P. Morgan said. And that, uh, Dave, it sounds like your point was that uh, what we're going to have to do is just lie to the American people a lot and uh, readjust expectations and create a new normal, which seems to be actually what we uh, do generally in this country. But uh, it is what it is. Lie is uh, everybody- strong, but but yes. <laughs> yeah. You said I'm going to put on my tinfoil hat and we'll just uh, we just keep redefining things. So it's OK. And that that seems to be the uh, ongoing trend. So, guys, everybody in the description, you can follow Mike McGlone, Dave Weisberger, James Lavish. James, uh, especially, he mentioned his newsletter. Uh, you can find that on his Twitter. Absolutely a must read. And I think my favorite part of this entire stream is that James started in the dark and ended in the light, uh, which shows just how early he decided to to, to wake up for us. Guys, I will be back tomorrow, of course, uh, I believe with Christopher Inks from Texas West Capitol, but uh, don't quote me on that. 9.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hope you guys enjoyed Macro Monday. I know I did. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, James, Dave, Mike. You guys are legends. Thank legit. you, Scott. Thank, Thank you, you, Dave, you, Mike. Scott. Thanks, guys. Bye, guys. That's dope.